Hello and welcome to Tales from the Hook. My name is Katie Kelleher, aka Katie Cranes, and I am going to be your host for the next half an hour. In this podcast, I'm going to be deep diving into the construction industry. I'm going to be looking into topics such as skills, apprenticeships, some interesting life journeys, and everything in between. Who knows what may happen? This podcast has been very kindly sponsored by our friends over at Libra. If you want to find out more about Libra's products or brilliant innovations, please click the link at the bottom. Hello, everyone. So on today's Tales from the Hook, we have a fairly interesting lady who has been working in construction for the last eight years, whose claim to fame is appearing on an episode of Impossible Engineering, talking about steam shovels. Yes, this episode today is about me. It's about Katie Kelleher. And this kind of come around uh, through a random conversation I was having with a friend of mine who said that their friend loved my podcast, found it really interesting, but they were looking to find out a little bit more about me to get a little bit more personal. And seeing as it's my podcast, I run the idea by Andrew, um, who thought it was actually a really good one and not as self-serving as I thought it might be, as it might come across. He thought it might be a good idea to do a, a short episode on me and how I got into construction and um, what I thought of it and things that are going on. So, yeah, I thought let's go for it. Let's see how we go. And hopefully you find this one as interesting as the other guests that I've had on. I I doubt I'll be up to their level as we've had some really fantastic people on, but let's roll with it and see how we go. So my colleague Andrew has sent me over a list of things I should probably cover to get you a bit more invested in me and learn a little bit more about me and my background and where I come from and how I got into this. And I guess it might be something not some of you have, you know, probably heard before uh, about me as I, I do tend to talk a lot and I do, <laughs> I do tend to do uh, quite a lot of talks on my career and my experiences and how I got into this and things I do. But I guess what I'll do is I'll, I'll try and dig a little bit deeper for you Um you know, less glamorous, a little bit more gritty. Yeah, I, I guess it's always hard when you're you're doing all the talking yourself, but I, I will try my hardest. So, me, um, I was born in Stockton on Tees, um, many, many, many moons ago, and but we didn't live there for very long. So we ended up moving down south when I was about one about one years old and the reason for that was there wasn't any work up north so my dad is a bricklayer by trade him and my mum met working in factories Um, but there wasn't any work and there wasn't any money up north anymore so the plan was to move down south for a year so my dad could do some work down here working in construction earn his money and the plan was always to go back up north and live there obviously that didn't happen if you can't tell by my accent I've lived here all of my life so we we ended up staying down here I think that the money was probably too good and the prospects up north um, weren't quite as 
good as they were down here. So at the time we lived in a flat in Charlton. Um, we then moved to another flat in Blackheath. Uh, we lived in we lived in council council flats. My my parents didn't have overly a lot of money at the time, and we lived with my mum's friend called Kitty, who was probably a well was a massive influence in my life. So I never really lived around my grandparents or anything, and I guess she kind of took that roll up um so she was a lot a lot more to me than 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 most people were um so yeah i i grew up uh, loving life in 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 southeast and eventually my parents we moved into a house that they bought and my my dad did the extension he did all the building work on it i guess that's the benefits of being quite handy and then i went to school around sidcup and I guess this is kind of where life begins and you, you kind of remember a bit more of the influences and things that happen to you. And um, I had a really good upbringing. You know, I haven't got any dark stories there. My my parents give me everything they possibly could. Um, I'm sure they probably went without many times just to make sure that I could have everything. So I was very unaware of any situations that arose. They always kept me kind of in the dark about anything uh, that was going on to, to protect me, I guess. But it was really great. I mean, my my mum, uh, I go into my mum. My mum had a, a, a quite a tough upbringing. My mum grew up in Ireland. She was one of 12 children in Ireland, so big, big Irish family. And she left school when she was 14, um, and she was made to live with a an older lady who she works for for not for not a lot of money and sent the money back home to the family and then she moved to London um when she was oh god she must have been about 14 15 when she moved to London and she lived with an aunt over here for a while and then found her independence um she's she's a really strong woman my mum always tells me these kind of stories about when they were little and they'd go picking blackberries to pay for their shoes. So they'd pick blackberries, sell the blackberries, they'd buy a pair of wellies, which would last them all winter. And then in the summer, what you do with your wellies is you chop the top off the wellies. And, you know, things like this were kind of hard for me to believe because I, I grew up far, far away from that. And I mean, they didn't have a toilet. And my dad's, even when my mum met my dad and they went back to Ireland, and there wasn't a toilet. They were still going to the toilet in the field. And my dad said he went out there in his flares one night and he, he stood in, well, he stood in crap, but it wasn't like animal crap, it was people crap. And I, I just can't think of anything worse. <laughs> but um, yeah, I guess they're, they're the people that made me. My dad uh, grew up in Thornaby. He was one of six and he, he always had... I think I think he had a, a fairly good upbringing. He he tells me a lot of stories about playing with the other kids and everything that went on. I mean they they weren't rich family because my dad's my dad's father was a bricklayer as well. So my dad my da father himself is a fifth generation bricklayer, so he's always worked in construction, and his father and his father and it, it kind of went down the line like that. Um, but yeah, that's that's where they come from. So working class families. And then I come along and uh, from there, I guess, 
they give me a lot more than they they both ever had but I guess this is a, is a insight into me that I've kind of never told anyone. I, d- I don't know if people know much about my background or where I come from. I think a lot of assumptions are, are generally made, but um, that's my my basis. So, uh, yeah, we all talk completely different. My dad sounds very northern. My mum sounds very Irish and I sound very, very London, as I'm told. But I'll move on anyway. I digress a bit. So at school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Uh, Secondary school, I I really was into art. I was very creative. Um, I loved making things. I loved drawing. And I tried to get into numerous art colleges and I I failed. Mostly because, not because my ability wasn't there. I was a bit lazy. Uh, I'd kind of got quite lazy in my teenage years and um, I left, I probably still do this. I left everything to the last minute. And it didn't really work out for me. So the advice at school when going on to study was choose something that you're good at. And the only option for me was university. I was never told about anything else. Uh, My parents were very keen for me to go to university. The school was very keen for everyone to go to university. So the advice was pick something you're good at. We didn't have all these career chats that that I do in schools now. We didn't have all these people coming in. So I chose English literature without really thinking about what I was going to do with it, just that I was good at it and it might give me a degree and it might push me further along the line. Anyway, I, I went to university and I, I didn't really enjoy the whole experience. I was still quite lazy I didn't like English literature that much although I was good at it I didn't enjoy it as much as I enjoyed being creative as much as I enjoyed art as much as I enjoyed doing all these other things and I guess you're kind of in them awkward years where you either knuckle down or well or you drink too much alcohol and um And I enjoyed going out a lot at the time. But I stuck with university for two years. During this time, I was working in a phone shop. Uh, Phones for you. Some of you might remember phones for you. I can still do the hand movements. I'm doing it now. Not that you can see, but you you can imagine. And um, I dropped out of university without telling anyone. Um, I just dropped out and I still pretended to go for it for an amount of time, but I was going to work instead. And this is, I guess, where my working life started. So I, I was selling phones. Um, I moved from sales job to sales job after that. I worked for T-Mobile. I worked for the news shop, which is a local newspaper. I did the births, deaths and marriages section, which was an e- either a really happy day or a very, very, very sad day. But um, it was a good job. And then I worked for Superbike magazine. I worked for Military Modeling magazine, which is not naked men, as my friend thought. It's actually people who, who paint models, military dioramas and small uh, soldiers and things like that and put it together so it looks quite lifelike. Uh, I worked for Model Engineers Workshop. Eventually I ended up selling people. So I worked in recruitment, which is, although slightly different, you're still selling a commodity. You're selling people instead of selling items, selling advertising. And um, I guess this is where things started to change for me so I worked on a trades and labour section putting out painters bricklayers carpenters um 
anything like that really, plasterers. And I was looking at all these people. Okay, I didn't have many women on my books. I only had one. But I, they were all getting paid a lot more than I was getting paid doing recruitment. I mean, a lot, lot more. And cause, probably because I wasn't a very good salesperson. But And I kind of thought, could I work in construction? I guess this is this light bulb moment for me, this uh, this epiphany, this this moment where things could possibly change. And... I didn't really know what I'd do. I didn't have the skill set for construction. I didn't have the tickets. I didn't really have the knowledge. Um, and I, I didn't know what I'd do. So I, I blanketed out a, a CV to a few companies because the one thing I could do while I was in work was look at construction companies because it was part of my job. And I, I didn't really think I'd hear anything back. It was, you know, it was like shooting fish in a barrel, it felt a bit like at the time. But I got. I was driving home from work one day and I remember this moment very, very vividly. And I've spoke about it quite a lot because it, I think it's the moment where life started to change. So I was driving home from work and I got this phone call. Hi, uh, Katie, it's, it's so-and-so from Langer Rock. We got your CV. Um, how do you feel about being a crane operator? And, it, you know, it's one of them questions that you kind of never expect to be thrown at you. And... People often envisioned that I became a crane operator because I always wanted to be a crane operator. And I walked around London looking up at cranes and that I couldn't think of anything better. And it really wasn't that. Uh, like most people who work in construction, I kind of fell into it. So this is where it all started. So he asked me if I felt like being a crane operator. And I said, oh, maybe. I said, send me through the details and I'll, I'll have a look and I'll get back to you. Um, so they emailed me through these details. I got home. I said to Dad, I said, Dad, Lang O'Rourke rang me up today. He's like, oh, did they want a few guys for work? I said, no, they, di they didn't ring me up for that. They didn't want any guys. He thought I'd got lucky with a, a contract or something. And he said, what did they want? I said, they asked me if they wanted to be a crane operator. And I just remember this, this moment. My dad stood in the kitchen. He just turned around. As soon as I said this, he turned around, looked at me and he said, did you tell them to fuck off? And I, and I said, no, I didn't tell them that. I said to send it through and I'd have a look at it. And then I kind of thought, could I be a crane operator? Um, what would that be like? I didn't know any women who were crane operators. I didn't know any women who even operated plant. But could I possibly do this? Someone was offering me an opportunity. So I spoke to my dad and my boyfriend at the time about it, about being a crane operator. And they said, oh, you won't like it. It's dirty. It's full of men. You can't have your nice nails. You won't be able to wear your makeup. You won't be able to do your hair like you do, uh, blah, blah, blah. But the problem with me is as soon as people tell me I can't do something, um, it, it pushes me harder to want to do it. So I didn't really say anything about it. And I kind of went on my merry way and I thought I'll go to the interview see what I think and we'll go from there so I turned up at the interview and it was all guys so it's me and other men who were interviewing I've turned up in my little dress from recruitment little pair of shoes and I'm thinking oh my god why am I doing this to myself was my initial thoughts I don't fit in here I didn't feel like I I belonged or that I fitted in uh, but I thought I'll go through the interview anyway. I didn't expect to get it, but I thought I'd go through it. So we went in, we did the interview. All the interviewees were all men as well. Um, 
so I really wasn't sure what I was doing there. I felt very out of place at the time. I walked away. I didn't expect to get the job. I got a phone call a couple of days later offering me the role. We'd like to offer you the role. We were really impressed with you at the interview. The first thing I said was, it's not because I was the only woman, is it? Because nobody wants to be the token woman. Nobody wants to just get the job because, you know, you were the only woman who turned up on the day. But he said, no, it wasn't that. Uh, we did a lot of different tests during our interview. And he said, you showed really good skills and ability. Um, and, you know, you controlled the situation really well. And we could see you moving into management at some point. So we'd really like you to join us. So at this point, I had to go away because the start date was fairly soon. So I had to go and tell my dad that I was actually thinking of doing this. And, um, you know, after the initial shock and again telling me I won't like it and it's very dirty and it's this, that and the other, um, I think they just thought, well, why not go for it? And for me, that moment was so important because it was somebody handing me an opportunity and I don't, I don't think, you know, it, probably when they were offering it, I don't know if they'd ever knew how important it would be to me or how life-changing it would be to me. Um, but it was an opportunity to change my life. So it wasn't that I really desperately wanted to be a crane operator. I didn't know even if I'd be a good crane operator. I'd either be really good at it or I'd be really bad at it. But if I never tried, I'd never know. And I, I always thought, if I don't try this, if I don't take this chance and take this moment... I'll never know and I'll always be kicking myself and I was like I said things weren't great I changed job in the last six months and I found a really nice recruitment company so that made the choice a little bit harder but I was in you know I was in quite a lot of debt I got myself in a bit of trouble um things really weren't great I was kind of spiraling in and out of a bit of depression I was crying I was having panic attacks on the way home mostly led by this this debt that I'd kind of amassed on myself that I couldn't get out of and I wasn't sure what to do and I didn't speak about it and I didn't tell anyone about it but this gave me an opportunity to change all that to earn decent money to work hard to to get stuck in to learn something new so somebody was offering me an apprenticeship uh, they were offering to pay for all my tickets to give me new skills and I think, you know, sometimes we undervalue uh, the importance of new skills to people and, and what it means to give someone the opportunity to learn. And I mean, I never worked in construction and, you know, we sometimes judge people by their CVs and what they do. And I mean, I come from a recruitment background, um, but I, I'd like to think that I've done well at what I did and I became a, a good crane operator. I always say it was the one thing that I actually felt really good at that I did really well. I'm not sure I do well at many other things, um, but it was the one thing I was actually really, really good at. I took a lot of pride in operating a crane very well. I take a lot of pride in, you know, once you do that good lift and and you, I don't know, there's just, it's a really hard feeling to explain to someone that hasn't operated machinery. But when you do something and you do it well, and it might be a little bit challenging and you've got a good team around you, there's a real sense of pride in that. So my first job I went into, so I worked at Tottenham Court Road on the Crossrail site. And I always talk about my first day because I think it's really important that people learn from it. 
and do better the next time. And as a company that I work for, we, we do better with this now, but I think it's just important that people are aware that people who haven't worked in construction before don't understand construction sites. When people turn up to a construction site, they expect you to understand how it works, where everything is, and fully understand the concept of working on site. And when you haven't, you don't, you just don't get it. So I turned up like two hours early, not knowing I was two hours early because that's the time it told me to be there. I walked in and I said, I'm here uh, for the induction. He went, yeah, yeah, go upstairs. Yeah, no problem. So I walked upstairs in this room. This room was full of men. Okay, fine, no problem. But they were all having, they were all talking. So there was one guy up the front talking to a room full of men. He stopped. Everyone in the room stopped and they all turned around and stared at me. And I'm thinking, well, I must be in the right place. The guy sent me up here. So I walked through the room while everyone followed me with their eyes. I reached the back wall. I put my back against it and I slid down to the floor. Like, and everyone slowly turned back and he carried on what he was doing. I was fully in the fetal position by this time, my head in my hands. Um, wanting something to swallow me up and questioning my choices. So at this moment, I thought, what the hell are you doing? Why are you doing this to yourself? Why don't you go back to recruitment? You don't belong here. And I guess that's a, that's kind of a theme that follows me in my early career, that I, I didn't belong. And I always say if I was a bit younger or if that was my first job, I would have gone home that first day and never, ever gone back again because it was such a bad experience. And it, it's really hard to explain that feeling of pure dread that goes over you when you walk into a situation like that and the sweat goes up on your back and it's 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 a moment of sheer panic and not knowing what to do and being uncomfortable. But I, I digress a little bit, but it, it it was it was uncomfortable, and I just I just hope that we understand that new people, apprentices, um, they might need a little bit more guidance on their first day and a little bit of support. But I went out onto site and I got introduced to people, and everyone was staring at me. Uh, there's not many female crane operators. I guess most of you probably know this, but. There's not many of us in this industry and some people on site have never worked with a female crane operator. So there was a lot of staring for a long time and I felt like I had to be kind of chirpy and I had to wave at people. And I <laughs> I say it was a lot like being the Pope in the Pope mobile, you know, in his, his glass vehicle. And you're sat in this crane with these glass walls and I felt like I had to smile and wave at everyone for at least six months this went on. I was overly happy and overly waving, especially when they put a walkway in front of my crane and people were walking past and just waving at me all day. It was a very, very strange place to be. And I guess you, you do immediately recognise the difference between being a woman on site and a man on site. And then when the lorry drivers turn up, everyone's asking, what's that woman like in the crane? Is she any good? And you know deep down if you're a man, no one would even ask what you're like in the crane or ask if you're a good operator and they wouldn't really care. They'd just get on with the job. So I felt like a real big pressure for probably the best part of the first year about doing everything really well. 
because you always felt like you were being watched. And I, I was never sure whether this was a, a pressure I was kind of putting on myself or a pressure that I felt from sight. And I, I was talking to someone else about the same thing. But I think it was it was definitely because people were asking if I was good. And I did realise that they were only asking because I was female. And I, maybe people thought I was going to stick the crane into the building next door. And then they'd go, oh, it's just because she's a woman or, so, or something. It always felt like that. And to be fair, for the first six months, I wasn't sure whether I wasn't going to stick the, the crane in the building next door. It felt very close. You go from operating in a field on your apprenticeship to operating in a very tight London site. Everything seems very, very close. And you worry about wind a lot in the crane. You think, oh, if there's a big gust of wind, what will happen? But anyway, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. You get used to things. And it was um, it was a really good place to be. But I guess working for Crossrail and working on this site got me involved in other things that I do now. So they started inviting me to talk. We had a lot of ministers and people turn up on site and I'd get invited to go and talk to them as an apprentice uh, to talk about what we were doing in construction, what I was doing, about my apprenticeship. Then they invited me on a scheme called Young Crossrail, which is talking to school kids um, about what we do. And, and it was this moment that got me involved in all these other things that I do. And I, I kind of begun to see the importance of talking, the importance of telling people about the opportunities that we have in construction. I know we tend to talk about the negatives and I, I do talk about the negatives because only in the hope that I hope we can do things better. And it's not, they're not big negatives. These are really small things that have large impacts on people's lives. So turning up to site and feeling that awful, like I say, my first day, if I was younger, if it was my first job, I wouldn't have come back. By talking about it, we can counteract this for the next people. Turning up and there being no toilet, it's a really small thing, but it can impact someone's life massively. If you're, for instance, I was sharing a toilet with a welders for for a, a short time and you you end up, not, not at Crossroad, this was a different site, but you end up holding we all day you end up trying not to go to the toilet so I try and go limit myself to like twice in the toilet and it makes you uncomfortable and it makes your life uncomfortable it makes your mental health uncomfortable it makes everything uncomfortable it's these very very small things okay there's a lot of big things that sometimes go wrong and there's a lot of other issues we have to address but if we get the small things in place first to make people's working days a lot more comfortable surely that's a lot better um I guess that's a bit of a preach from me, but it does. You, you'd be surprised at the impact these things have on people's lives and, and their working day and how much they dread going into work just because they can't wee freely or go to the bathroom freely or... Yeah, so that that's why I talk about these small things. And then I begin to see the importance of talking about apprenticeships in school because I, I came to the conclusion if I knew about apprenticeships earlier... I would have took one earlier instead of going to university and doing that. I would have chosen an apprenticeship. I don't know. Maybe I'd have gone into engineering or something like that. Maybe I'd have just changed my life at an earlier stage. Don't get me wrong. I'm really grateful for all the experiences I had and all these different things I went through and all the training I had and it's who makes me who I am today and you know, being customer facing and doing sales training it gives you the confidence to talk to people and the confidence to do things like this. But 
maybe maybe things would have been a bit different if I was more aware. So that that surrounds a lot of the schoolwork I do now. I talk a lot about uh, degree apprenticeships, about non-degree apprenticeships. See, people often think I go into school and tell everyone to be crane operators, and it's it's really not about that. It's it's really bigger than that. So it's about the industry, and it's about selling the industry as a whole and talking about all the opportunities we have available. Yeah, some people might want to be crane operators, work on site, but it's not it's not for everyone. You have to give everyone the full amount of options. You can't just go in quite singularly. So Andrew put down to talk about how I built a social presence. And I guess this kind of leads on again. When I was working at Crossrail at Tottenham Court Road, I, I started putting up a, a few small snippets of my day-to-day life and what I was doing on on LinkedIn that's where it started and I noticed that the response to me on LinkedIn was completely different than when I was a salesperson so when I was a salesperson nobody wanted to talk to me on LinkedIn when I was trying to do recruitment and contact people nobody wanted to talk to me nobody wanted to add me and nobody was interested the moment I took a step away from that I guess it's that moment where you stop trying to sell people things and you're just telling them about your career and your life and what you're doing and that's where the social media thing grew from and people were interested in what it's like being a crane operator what it's like being a woman in construction and and the response was it was quite overwhelming for a time it was it was i mean i've got 20 over 24,000 followers on linkedin now which is massive compared to where i was and you know and everyone's so lovely and they're generally just really interested in what you're doing i think the moment you just start telling your story rather than sell things to people is where it changed and then obviously i've got the instagram and and the website and things like that but it all built from there i mean i'm not i'm not up there with uh, some of the i want to say this some of the kids but that makes me sound really ancient but um some of the other people out there who are smashing it of eighty thousand followers and things like that i'm not nowhere near that level but i do enjoy telling my story and i do enjoy keeping a record of what's going on and I do hope that putting more images out there of of us, of women doing these things, of apprenticeships, just opens up doors and it just makes young people more aware of the opportunities out there. I mean, don't get me wrong, I think there's a lot we need to do in the industry and and sometimes I feel mildly guilty that I'm selling a a dream uh, to young people, that I'm selling a an industry that maybe we're not quite there yet uh, on especially on the on the workforce side I think we still have a lot of work to do and at the moment there's a lot of talk about flexibility in the workforce and the, and the lack of flexibility in the workforce and I set up the women's workforce working group and we were talking about pregnancy in the workforce and how that affects us and and the drop off after that. So I do feel we are getting more women in construction, but my concern now is how do we keep women in construction? And we're just hemorrhaging them out the other side. So we lose a lot of women in the industry, in the workforce, in the industry in general after pregnancy. 
Um, it, I think it happens in pretty much all industries. My concern is on the the on a workforce level. Um, you know, bearing in mind that these people kind of get up at maybe five in the morning. Uh, as an operator, maybe you're due to finish at six. Maybe there's concrete. Maybe you'll finish at seven, eight o'clock, nine o'clock. Maybe there's a lorry, extra lorry coming in. It's very unpredictable. It can be a really unpredictable industry. So if if you have a child, how do you do this? And I, you know, I haven't completely got the answer for this yet, but there needs to be more flexibility around. And it's not just for women, it needs to be flexibility for everyone. I think the, the next generation are not willing to work as we've worked before. I think they, they wanna see that change. They wanna see us invest in them. They wanna see us make allowances. They wanna see us be a, a little bit more flexible than we currently are as an industry. And when we make that flexibility for all, yeah, it might cost a bit more money. It might take a little bit more thinking about, it might, you know, it might be a little bit awkward at first, but I think this is where we'll revolutionize, revolutionize. <laughs> I think this is where we really make a, a change in the industry. I think this is where we'll really make an impact. So we talk about staff shortages. There's massive staff shortages uh, throughout the industry. And, and in the workforce uh, because people aren't taking up trays, they're not doing, uh, they're not taking up bricklaying, they're not taking up carpentry. So a lot of the workforce is aging and we're not getting young people in the field of spaces. But as soon as we look after the workforce a bit more, as soon as we treat them like other members in construction, as soon as we lead from the top and they see these changes that we're making and we're more inclusive and we're more flexible, like other industries, I think that will naturally grow the workforce, and we we need to we need to get that message out there that we are changing and we are evolving. I think that's a big problem. We've stopped. There's points where we're just not evolving quick enough, and you know the the women in construction is just a, a small point of that. I think it's like two percent of women in trades and plant um, in construction, and most of them are cleaners on site so the, the numbers are very very small in that area so Andrews wrote one to, so I guess this is a question that I always ask everyone else but I've never really thought about myself so one thing I would change about the industry well I don't ask that I ask one thing that we should all do to make the industry better and I, I think we should be more accepting of everyone, accepting of their lives, accepting of their need for work-life balance, accepting of their nationality, their diversity, their sexuality. We should all be more accepting towards one another. And I think this will link into people's mental health. I think it will make it a much better place to work. You know, it's proven that diverse teams do a lot better anyway. So, yeah, I'm going to say we should be accepting of each other. And I think that's probably it. I've, I've probably shot over time. Andrew said to do about 20 minutes. I think I've done about 25 of talking and talking at you guys, and you're probably really bored by now. But I hope 
that's given you a bit of insight. And I, I guess in some ways it will have. And in some ways you've probably heard a lot of what I've said before. Um, I, I, somebody asked me the other day, you know, I do all these talks and I, I get up there and I talk to people about change and about the industry and about doing these things and how do I feel and how do I do it? I'm nervous. I'm deadly nervous every time. Panels, not too bad because you've got other people there to share the load on to. But when it's just me on my own and I have to stand up and talk to people and I always think, who am I to be telling people how to do this? So I always take the stance of I'm just telling you about my experiences and I'm throwing in the realities and you should want to make the change after that. But I'm always deadly nervous. I, I, I suffer a lot with anxiety. Um, I push myself to do these things. I push myself outside of my comfort box to, to try. And I guess some of it's for me. Some of it's for selfish reasons, you know, because I want to better myself and I want to become better at these things. And other things because I think it's really important I think sometimes um, a lot of the work I do around the workforce is because the, naturally they're a bit of a silent force in construction and their voice isn't as vocal as some others out there. So I, I try and push that forward. And I do think what I do is really important. But yeah, I do suffer with self-doubt. I do suffer with imposter syndrome massively. Um even even doing this and I kind of like when I was talking to Steve on on our podcast and we were saying we're just winging it and he said I'm just a ground worker trying to make a difference and I guess I'm just an apprentice crane operator trying to make a difference trying to make a change and hope that maybe I can make some impact maybe I can make some ripples maybe I can make things better um, I guess that's all I hope for in this format, in any format, in work, in LinkedIn. I hope that some of what I say uh, becomes important to even just one person and makes them, I don't know, makes them consider an apprenticeship, makes them want to change career, makes them feel like they're not alone. And I guess I should probably leave it on that note, but... If you ever want to know more about me, I'm I'm fairly open. You can always message me uh, through the website, through LinkedIn, whatever suits you. But thank you for listening. I really hope I haven't bored you all to tears as I, I realise it's kind of a, a Katie monologue of me going <laughs> on and on about my life and where I am and what's going on. Um, but a massive thank you to Andrew at Construction Wave for offering me this opportunity to do this podcast and supporting me uh, with all the equipment and everything that I need in order to do this. And a massive, massive, massive thank you to Lieber who have sponsored this podcast. Um, just the fact that they wanted to be part of this, uh, that a big company like that, who I have a huge amount of respect for, wants to be part of taking on this journey with me is it means the absolute world to me and I hope I hope it does well and I hope you know that everyone's really happy with what we're putting out there but 
I will catch up with you with another guest soon, which will hopefully, if this bombs, I don't know, but hopefully it doesn't. But if, if it does, the guest will redeem me, I'm sure. But thank you so much. I hope you all have a fantastic Christmas coming up. And thank you so much.